Let's stop by the house for a second because I need to drop off a couple things. It's these three daggers and 723 goat cheese wheels. Welcome to Triple Click, where we bring the games to you. This week we talk about Bethesda games, from the Elder Scrolls Arena to Starfield. What makes a Bethesda game a Bethesda game? Besides the wheels of cheese. I'm Maddie Myers. I'm Jason Schreier. And I'm Kirk Hamilton. And hello. Hello. Hi, my fellow co hosts. Hi, yeah, guys. We did it again. We all got together again. By the time you hear this, Maddie Myers will be married. (gasps) It's true. It's true. We're recording this in advance. New thing. This is a usual thing where we have to say we're recording this in advance. If anything crazy happens, like if Todd Howard comes out and Starfield has a whole section that says, Maddie will never get married. <laughs> Congratulations to the version of you that exists when this episode is airing to yep. the future to future Maddie to from future past Maddie. Kirk. Congratulations to future married Maddie. To married future Maddie. Myers. That's married how I'm going to introduce Myers. myself. That's a tongue twister. Say that ten it's times. It's me, Mary, 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 it's how we are a listener-supported show is because we're part of that network. And mm-hmm. you can help support us and the rest of that cool co-op network that is MaxFun by going to MaximumFun.org join and becoming a member. And if you do that, you get a sweet little gift from us once a month. And a huge backlog of every previous gift we've ever given out once a month. And that is a bonus episode. It's true. So this coming month, the bonus app is going to be a little late because I'm getting married. And also Mm -hmm. because Zelda Tears of the Kingdom is a long game. But we are going to do a bonus episode about Tears of the Kingdom where we spoil the heck out of it. We spill the beans. We do a beans cast. Kirk, remind me what day that's going to come out. First week of September at some point? Yeah, the first week, a few couple days into September. So just a little later than we usually do. We usually release them at the end of the month. This is August's bonus episode. It'll just be out a couple days into September. So keep an eye on your bonus feed and you'll see when it pops up and it'll be a a lovely surprise for you. Mm -hmm. And regardless, there'll still be 12 bonus apps in the year. So just ignore the specific days that they came out and don't worry (laughs) about it. There's 12 bonus apps a year, which is kind of like having one a month. Anyway, <laughs> maximumfund.org slash join is the URL to go to. Please, please become a member and earn our undying love. And yeah. not mine, though. I wouldn't say it's undying. <laughs> I would say it's it's undying until you right, stop until becoming you stop a member. Very conditional becoming, love, really. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. I think we still love you. That's true. We but do. It's, it we is... Do. A, a little slightly, bit less. It burns a little brighter if you become a member. <laughs> uh-huh, it's uh-huh, just true. a little bit more powerful. <laughs> this is the stuff great parasocial relationships are made of, you guys. <laughs> yeah. yeah, is this working? Is this a healthy way Hopefully to engage? This is working. I don't know. Uh, so, Kirk, what are we talking about today? We're talking about Bethesda games, specifically what's the deal with Bethesda role-playing games. We have got a brand new Bethesda universe on the horizon in Starfield, (laughs) one of the most hyped games of 2023. It's coming out in just a few weeks. None of us have played it, and I don't know if any of us will play it in advance. But, you know, we haven't played it, but we have played a lot of Bethesda games over the years, and we've watched as the influence of these role-playing games has spread and gone far beyond any one game studio. So we have done episodes about the Fallout series, What's the Deal with Fallout, and we did an episode about Skyrim, one of the most successful Bethesda role-playing games. So those two episodes already exist, and none of us remember anything we said on either of them. (laughs) So we're just going to repeat all they the same were things. huge open world episodes, and there's right. just so much to keep track of. It's like can't... replaying an open world game where right. you do the same things, but you don't remember that you did them, so it's just as fun as the first Or time. it's like playing a Bethesda game where the character repeats dialogue over and over. <laughs> well, we right. could play this like the evil way. Like We could just like make totally crazy choices right. this time we Right, we, we totally contradict all the points yeah. that we made last time around. Like, because, wow, uh, we hate right. dragons. They're so not the coolest part of 
Skyrim. I really hate when a game is open-ended and lets you make your own adventure. So anyways, we have talked about these games quite a bit on the show, and we've also talked about games that were influenced by them, but it seemed like a good time to just take stock of the Bethesda Game Studios style role-playing game because Starfield is coming out, and Starfield feels like it's going to land in a slightly different world than the last uh, BGS It's going to land which... in a lot of worlds, actually. <laughs> yeah, true. thousand planets. Thousands of worlds. But it, um, it, uh, I guess the last BGS game was Fallout 76 in 2018. But the last proper sort of single-player game was Fallout 4. And that was in 2015, so coming up on 10 years ago. So wow. it's been a long time since we've gotten one of these games. A lot has changed. Uh, notably, Breath of the Wild came out, but there are a lot of other things <laughs> that changed, too, that we'll get into. So I guess let's just start by talking a little bit, refreshing listeners, on our overall relationship with these types of games, uh, which ones we like, which ones we've liked less, what we think of them now versus what we thought of them when we first played them. Jason, why don't you kick us off? Yeah, I my first one was Oblivion, which is kind of a bad first one because it left mm-hmm. kind of a, a, a not so great impression. But then I got really into Fallout 3 and then really into Skyrim. Skyrim, yeah. I lived and breathed for a long time. I have fond memories of, of when I played that game. I actually reviewed it for wired um and i did oh yeah that's right i went to a preview event and everything that was that was a a very long time ago but um Mm, it was one of those it was really (laughs) it was actually one of the best preview events i've ever been to because they didn't say anything they didn't do anything they just dropped Mm -hmm. you in front of a computer and said play this for three hours and you can do whatever you want it was legit like the best kind of preview for for a game like this that, that i should say and yeah and then i was i was lukewarm on fallout 4 i like didn't even play more than 10 hours of that game, which which was disappointing because Fallout 3 and Skyrim, I both explored like most of the worlds of those games, got really into them both. Um, and so, yeah, I'm very curious to see where Starfield goes. I'm like not really a space exploration type person, unless it's a very special type of game like Outer Wilds. Right. So I don't even know if I'm going to play that much Starfield or care that much about Starfield. It does feel like in a post-Baldur's Gate 3 world that that Bethesda, <laughs> that Bethesda formula is going to be interesting to address. But yeah, to, to answer your original question, really into Skyrim, really into Fallout 3, um, the feeling of just kind of like wandering in Skyrim in any different direction and just finding something interesting, that was so... Uh, I don't know if it was the first game to do something like that. It certainly, actually, it wasn't. Definitively, can say it wasn't the first game to do something like that. But it really kind of mastered that formula of exploration and just uh, environmental storytelling and narrative design through like finding this weird little uh, uh, outpost somewhere and learning that it's actually full of cannibals. I guess that was Fallout Three, but I, learning that they're vampires. <laughs> there are probably some cannibals and yeah, they're va- vampires too. in Skyrim vampires in the basement or something and just kind of like telling these little stories through exploration i was always really um impressed and really enjoyed that sort of thing you know vampires are kind of fantasy cannibals i I know i I never drew that comparison until jason did just now if you think about it a cannibal is like a vampire that just likes solid food Mm mm-hmm and is sexy, sexier than most cannibals. Yeah, yeah. There, were so the, yeah. there were cannibals. I remember there's a house of cannibals in Fallout 3, and then Fallout New Vegas mm-hmm. had like a, a cult of cannibals, that white glove like family thing. Oh, yeah, right, mm. right. Right? Or were they vampires? I don't remember the specifics, <laughs> but I do remember enjoying that. I think they were eating each I think they were cannibals. There weren't, there are no vampires in Fallout lore, so I think they were. There no, there cannibals. are ghouls and there are cannibals, but I don't think there well, are the vampires. Well, the ghouls are totally different. Yeah, no, right, they were totally they cannibals. Well, but ghouls <laughs> live a really long time like vampires. That's true. Mm. Ghouls are Should just we mutants. do a video game monster etymology on the show at some point? Uh, yeah, that'd, be right? fun. that'd be fun for ghouls. an episode. I mean, I do feel like I've, I've been in a lot of goblin camps this past year. We don't even That's get true. into it, but there have been a lot of goblin camps. I'm That's writing all. down types of video game Kirk's monsters. Kirk's writing this down. In our, in our documents for a future <laughs> episode. Are still going to have cannibals or vampires? I mean, are there going to be camps of enemies that we need to destroy? Mm -hmm. Because that is a core part of an open world game. Also, would a cannibal vampire, would that be a vampire that eats other vampires? Does that make you a cannibal vampire? Cannibal vampire would be the most hardcore heavy metal band you've ever seen. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. You've heard of Cannibal Corpse. Get ready for Cannibal Cannibal Vampire. Vampire. They're even harder. Um, Maddie, what is your relationship with Bethesda Games Studios role-playing? games 
Uh, well, I'm sure I said this on the Fallout episode, but forget all that. I'm going to say it again, folks. That's I, what we're doing today. Back in the 2000s, I had a roommate who played Elder Scrolls Oblivion, and that was my first interaction with Elder Scrolls. And I was like, this doesn't look fun to me at all because the mm-hmm. roommate was grinding <laughs> and just like killing rats mm-hmm. over and over. And I was like, man, I had the same exact experience all the way down to the roommate where you just fight the same enemies over and over and, you and fight a lot of rats, watch a number very slowly like this seems like the least fun thing I've ever seen and it's like everything I hate about fantasy role playing games but then said roommate started playing the Fallout games and I had a much better time watching those uh, along I guess Fallout 3 would have been the next one uh, according to this timeline that Kirk made and I, I remember weighing in on choices and character creation and all of that and being like alright this is pretty cool and then I was working for the Phoenix by this point, and I reviewed Skyrim for the Phoenix. Thought it was great. Was very overwhelmed by open world games at that time, though. I don't think open world games really clicked for me emotionally until Breath of the Wild. I mean, I played them, but I was always like, there's so much to do. I, I, I don't know. These aren't my favorite kind of games. I'm not sure if this is for me. And Skyrim was something that I thought was really impressive and beautiful, but maybe just not for me. And then circling back to it again on this show in my post Breath of the Wild brain, mm-hmm. I actually enjoyed it way more, which I'm sure I said on our Skyrim episode in some form or other. And now heading into Starfield, I'm like, not sure how to feel because I, I like Jason. I'm not necessarily looking at Starfield and being intrigued by the story per se. It's, it's not to say I don't like space games. I, I do. I'm a Metroid fan after all. That's not what's, what's pushing me away. It's more just that I've played so many different RPGs this year. And so I'm wondering how Starfield is going to stand out. But I also feel like overall I've had kind of a slow falling in love with Bethesda games and understanding them and seeing what makes them so special uh, between Skyrim and the Fallout later Fallout games. So I'm cautiously optimistic, but not sure what to expect since it's the first in a new IP. So. Yeah, they're very, as they have very excitedly <laughs> told us many times. Yeah. Yeah, so my history with these games actually goes all the way back to the very first Elder Scrolls game. I played the Elder Scrolls Arena, um, not in 1994 when it came out, because I don't think I had a PC that could play games then. But maybe 96 or 97, I found it in, I think it was a software, etc., which was the name of (laughs) the game store in my mall. Cool. And um, (laughs) I remember, I think I bought it just purely based on the advertisement on the back of the box. This This famously had a scantily clad lady along with, she's like a barbarian fighter along with these other characters on the cover. But I remember looking at the back and seeing the 3D graphics and something about, you know, hundreds of miles to explore and sort of an endless adventure that you can go on and thinking, well, that sounds really cool. It could be I'd read a review in a magazine or something that pointed me that way. But my memory is that I just found it on the shelf and bought it. So that was the very first game that they made. The story behind that game is funny. It was supposed to be like a gladiator arena battle game. That's why it's called the Elder Scrolls Arena. And I remember as a kid or as a, I guess, a teenager having that same question, being like, why is this called arena? It's just an open world that you walk around. There aren't any arenas that I can find. There's just dungeons full of rats that you hit with your sword. Um, So I liked that one a lot at the time just because I think I saw the potential for what it could be. It it felt like an infinite game in a way that nothing else that I'd ever played had felt, at least at that time. So then fast forward a few years, I skipped The Elder Scrolls to Daggerfall, which I think was even bigger. Like they were procedurally generating huge maps that were just the same thing over and over and over. And you can just walk for like hours and hours in any direction and never really see anything unique or interesting. It just goes on forever. It looks kind of just copy pasted. So Daggerfall, I think, was particularly that way. Um, And I never played it. So then in I think in college, I guess, uh, I played The Elder Scrolls III, Morrowind, which is one that I, it's a game that holds a special place in the heart, I think, of a lot of people who like these games because it was so unusual and uh, kind of specific. It takes place in Morrowind, which is one of the districts in The Elder Scrolls. There's like this continent called Tamriel. I think I'm going to remember this all right. And then each, each sort of 
there are these different districts, and each district is sort of where one group of people lives. The High Elves live here. The Wood Elves live here. The Nords of Skyrim live in Skyrim. The Red Guards live over in, like, Hammerfell, I think it's called. And then Morrowind is where the basically the Drow, the Dark Elves, live uh, on this continent. And it's a really unusual place. It's, like, very swampy. There's really weird plants everywhere. Everything looks really cool. And I remember playing it and thinking, this just feels like this alien environment. It's almost like being on another planet. And that was the thing that made the game so exciting. Turns out you were playing Starfield all along. Yeah, what if you're on a thousand <laughs> other planets? Is that maybe what you were maybe thinking? One of the planets then? in Starfield <laughs> is, the is just Morrowind. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure it is. <laughs> that would be amazing. Or the Dunmer, actually. I think I guess they're, maybe they're called the Dunmer in this universe. <laughs> the Elder Scrolls is funny because I think they kind of made it up as they went. Yep. I don't even think they really knew what the Elder Scrolls were when they first created these. And <laughs> There's it's very some much old just scrolls. Tolkien. Don't worry it's about It's like it. Tolkien fantasy. There's wood elves and high elves and there's dark elves and there's trolls and there's got orcs and whatever. Like it's all the same stuff from Tolkien. Yep. It's just like in this different universe where there's occasionally interesting ideas. Like there's cat there's cat people. Well this is also there was a, a this giant like propagation of like might and magic and Ultima was really really the series that started all of this stuff but like mm-hmm. there were a lot of these kind of first person style uh either dungeon crawlers or rpgs and it was they all kind of look the same like they have the big character cards at the bottom of the screen with the faces on them and then on the right side of the screen you have all the actions you could do like a sword and like a walking a guy walking for moving and like like all that that sort of thing it was a very big trope in the 90s with computer rpgs Yeah, and you know, not so I could keep telling my story, but actually to stay on this, I think something that struck me as notable about The Elder Scrolls Arena, even from the beginning, was that it was a real-time game with real-time combat. So you would kind of dodge in and out of fights, and you'd be pressing, I think, the control button at the time to swing your sword, and it wasn't like a turn-based battle the way that some of those dungeon crawlers worked. It had more of an arcade-y feel to it, which was notable even at the time, and has remained kind of one of the most identifiable things about these games over the years is that they are real-time first-person games. The Fallout games, obviously, you're shooting guns. They're not very good first-person shooters, but they are first-person shooters. And in you know the Elder Scrolls games, you're mostly swinging a sword or a club or you're shooting magic spells or arrows. But it's all kind of in real time, which is definitely still feels unusual when you go play Skyrim it's like oh wow okay <laughs> like I have yeah. to run up to people and hit them with my sword and then hold up my shield before they swing and kind of uh-huh. master this weird first person melee combat mm-hmm. always, always yeah weird. the weakest parts of these games I would say uh, yeah. uh, <laughs> is the is the combat especially in Skyrim where you're just fighting endless Draugr uh, which are mm-hmm. the skeleton dudes mm-hmm. yeah it doesn't feel as good as picking up herbs and plants that's the best that's part. true yeah <laughs> or looking for vampires right no it is it's one place where the vr version of skyrim which i've played a little bit of is actually pretty cool because it really is vr first person melee combat and melee combat works pretty well in vr because you're holding the two little controllers that's your shield and your sword and then you're swinging the sword around and it actually moves one-to-one with your hand so as long as the game is fairly well designed in terms of collision detection you you actually sort of feel like you're holding your shield up to block the attacks and then you're hitting the guy like that actually tends to feel a little better to me than you pressing the triggers on my controller it's just kind of exhausting because you do it for half an hour and then you're like oh my god like i can't just keep swinging a sword i'm not in good enough shape for <laughs> wow. that. imagine if you were actually carrying a real sword and shield i know <laughs> yeah i know i'm sure there are people right who attach a sword like a shield and the sword to their vr controllers and then get really really buff playing these games <laughs> Um, so anyways, uh, I really liked Obli- um, I'm sorry, I really liked Morrowind and then took a five or six years off from gaming and when I came back to it, I got an Xbox 360. The two games that I bought were uh, Grand Theft Auto San Andreas and The Elder Scrolls Oblivion. Wow. So, <laughs> yeah, so you like, had a lot of time on your hands? I was going for bang for my buck. <laughs> I wanted the longest, biggest games possible. And also, I'd never played a GTA game, and I was I really wanted to. And I remembered loving Morrowind, so I was like, all right, I'm going to get Oblivion. And I remember having a similar feeling about Oblivion. I played a lot of it. I might have finished it, but it wasn't time well spent. I remember mm, thinking, this rats. is so repetitive and just there were these portals in oblivion that open and you run through them and you have to like fight a boss or like steal a gem or something and then go back through them because the the premise of oblivion is you're in cyrodiil which is the most boring district in the whole of tamriel because it's the capital district so it's kind of just like 
boring medieval England looking like green hills. It's not like Morrowind was cool and weird. Skyrim is cool because it's like the Arctic North and there's mountains and dragons and stuff. Uh, Cyrodiil is just kind of some fields. Like it's yeah. really not very interesting looking. And then the plot is like there's a bunch of portals to Oblivion, which is the kind of hell dimension, are just opening up hell randomly. Mouths. Hell mouths are opening up. They're basically <laughs> hell mouths, yeah. And you have to run into them, and then it's always the same thing. Like, they're very copy-pasted, and there's a billion of them. You could just play it forever. And I remember just kind of mindlessly playing it and being like, okay, this is really getting old after a while. Mm-hmm. So um, I didn't love that game, but I did play quite a bit of it. And then I, you know, enjoyed Fallout 3. Um, didn't think too much about it at the time. Like, I've since come to... Uh, have a better appreciation for all the narrative problems that that game had, especially at launch. Um, it really is a pretty sloppily told story, but it had its moments when you go into the black and white Pleasantville simulation. And, yeah, that would you know, rule. So what yeah, what are the narrative cool. problems? I, I enjoyed the story <laughs> in that game. Liam Neeson kicked well, ass. Well, you're really just following... It, the, it's that you're really just following your dad the whole time, and you're not really able to impact the narrative in any way. Like, you're just kind of wandering around following a guy who's off on his own adventure. That's just the main story. The main story is in these games. I mean, I guess this this leads to actually an interesting Bethesda trope, which is that the main stories are never particularly interesting. Even Skyrim, which I think a lot of people would consider the, the peak... Bethesda game. A lot of uh, the people think it's their best game yet. Um, the the main story of that is like the <laughs> the driest, most boring thing. Like you're a superhero and you kill right. a big dragon. Um, it's the side stories and the exploration and the adventures you have along the way that matters. So that's why I I enjoyed Fallout Three because like not a lot of games give you an op- like put you in front of a town with a nuclear bomb in the middle and give you the option to detonate it if, yeah. you, if you so choose. I feel like that's still one of the most memorable quests ever. Uh-huh. Like it's still yeah. like often people's go-to example, jokingly or not, of like a choice that matters in a video game. Like, did mm-hmm. you blow up the town or not? Yeah. yeah, to the point where I've, I mean, I some of my criticisms of, of Fallout 3 and Fallout 4 are based on H-Bomber Guy's videos. He's made these incredible videos yes. critiquing both of those games good. that are more thorough and well thought out than anything I could come up with right now. But I, I will link them in the show notes. If you want to watch like some very smart good criticisms of those two mm-hmm. games and actually he also did a video about fallout new vegas and how great That's that true. game is mm. um notably the the one of these types of games that was not made by bethesda game studios uh-huh, and um uh-huh. those are all really fun to watch he points out like well he talks some about that choice that um what's the town called uh oh, god megaton. Megaton. Yes, megaton megaton of course the megaton choice and how that is like yes that is a really impactful decision but it's almost comical in how totally overwrought the decision is it's the first thing that you do and you can either blow up all these innocent people or you can choose not to and of course like most people are going to choose not to the blowing up just exists to prove that it that the choice is possible sure. and then there, like there are things like in the end of that game you have to go into an irradiated room to like save the water supply and it was a binary choice like either you could sacrifice yourself nobly or you could make the brotherhood of steel lady do it and then that was seen as a bad thing no matter your reasoning even though one of your companions is a super mutant theoretically you could say to him you're resistant to radiation couldn't you just go into the room and press the button for me but he won't like he won't do it you have to do it and then eventually they like changed the ending and made it so you didn't have to die Mm -hmm. but there are a lot of things like that where the promise like the open-ended promise of the world and of the way that the game seems to work are completely thrown out the window especially narratively and i think that for a long time now that's been the biggest problem that bethesda game studios games tend to run into is there's this amazing promise to the open world but then the story and specifically the mainline story totally fails to live up to those open-ended promises that you know the the way that you feel when you first look you know at the at the open world uh i i guess i don't (laughs) i'm trying to remember if i if i felt that disappointed about fallout 3 i don't know that i ever did but i agree looking back on it especially in a Baldur's gate 3 universe that we're all living in Mm -hmm. now where we're like oh my god there's so many choices you can completely ruin your game and that was a, a big topic of conversation for us on that most recent Baldur's gate episode and I've been thinking about it a lot since then as I keep playing and Googling what I should and shouldn't do. I don't <laughs> think I ever had that experience in a Bethesda game, but I don't know if that's a bad thing. Like, I don't I don't know if I agree that that promise had to be lived up to, if that makes sense. Like, I agree with you that the stories aren't strong, 
but I'm okay with it if there's just one thing to do. Does that make sense? Like it's it's okay if there isn't yeah. a whole lot of variety there. It does. I guess uh, Baldur's Gate does put it into relief because Baldur's Gate is so good at telling you yes. Obviously, it doesn't make anything possible, but it is very good at rewarding you for thinking creatively. Mm -hmm. For example, in that game, if you had a character that was resistant to radiation, if that was a thing in Baldur's Gate, you absolutely could send them into the room and they would be resistant and they'd be able to do the thing and they would have accounted for that and written an outcome. There'd probably even be some lines of dialogue about it. So I think I understand feeling disappointed every time a Bethesda game railroads you into something which they do kind of a lot especially those older ones uh in the mainline narrative because they just need you to get to a certain outcome at certain fulcrum points in the story yeah so what i found more disappointing about fallout 4 specifically is Mm -hmm. that isn't isn't that like uh on the macro level you couldn't make different story choices because actually in fallout 4 you could like choose who to side through with although i don't remember if that actually amounted to anything Mm -hmm. i do remember there was some big war thing and you do have to yeah, those like different factions were all going to fight with the, the faction. End, yeah, you just but see like, different parts of the story, I would say, is kind of how that got checks it. out. What was more disappointing for me was on a micro level, and Baldur's Gate 3 really puts that in perspective, because in Baldur's Gate 3, there's so many fights where you can talk your way out of them, or you can find some uh, mm-hmm. way to sneak around, or you get some object that will end a fight for you, whereas in Fallout 4... Uh, everything just leads to a fight and there's no way out of it. And the dialogue options have been so simplified because they added a voice to your main character. And so they were limited in the number of dialogue options they could choose. And also you you don't actually get to choose your dialogue options, just kind of like the tone behind them in Mass Effect style. Um, and a lot of them just lead to the same outcome. You're just kind of making superficial choices and you can't hack your way into a situation or talk your way out of combat or do a lot of the things that I think Fallout New Vegas uh, a few years earlier was five years earlier, I believe, was was very good at giving you um, a lot of those options. So to me, it's it's less about like, I don't care as much if if there's only one ending or something or there's or it funnels you through major story moments in the same way. It's more the moment to moment stuff, which, again, speaks to what I was talking about earlier, where I care much more about the individual finding a cool complex and exploring it and spending an hour just doing things in it that I'll be way more disappointed if that funnels me in a single direction than if like the main story funnels me in a single direction yeah I think that there's I think that's very true and that some of it is just down to the quality of the writing in these games which Mm. honestly just like isn't very high when I think about New Vegas (laughs) there are some scenes in New Vegas these are scenes that I I'm not even sure I ever saw playing them but saw them in H-Bomber guys videos like where he's talking about them showing some of the different outcomes there are these amazing sequences in that game where you'll engage in a like philosophical political conversation with the leader of one of the factions and you really have to kind of talk him into seeing that the way he's been doing things is wrong, which this is a classic Fallout thing. This is something that happened all the time in Fallouts 1 and 2. And then he actually will agree with you if you can be persuasive enough not just by passing skill checks but by choosing the right arguments Mm -hmm. (laughs) and like role-playing it yourself which is so cool. And it comes down to the way the game is designed but it's also just good writing. Like the dialogue is good. It was written by people who are thinking deeply about the characters that they're writing. And there is a sense in some of these games that most of the characters are pretty shallow. That's definitely something that's true in Skyrim where most of the Jarls that you meet they have like one thing that they care about and they just don't really seem like fleshed out people and I think over time as more and more games have started to borrow ideas from these types of games and improve on them in some ways it's become more and more glaring the narrative and writing short uh, shortcomings that that these games have. Mm, yeah, that's the thing I wonder about Starfield. I wonder that how that game is going to handle writing in general. I wonder how that game is going to handle storytelling and choice. Yeah, yeah it's very, probably my biggest curious. source of trepidation about the game, not uh-huh. just because of Baldur's Gate, but also because there are just so many well-written games that I've played, and also games that just feel like Bethesda games, but give me a little bit more of a coherent narrative or like a coherent mm-hmm. sense of the world. Breath of the Wild is an obvious example. That game was heavily influenced by Skyrim. Mm-hmm. But now that I'm playing Tears of the Kingdom, 
I mean, it goes so far beyond the kinds of things that you can do in Skyrim. I would be hard pressed to go back and play Skyrim and uh, enjoy myself as much. I, I mean, to be fair, Tears of the Kingdom goes far beyond the things you can do in any game. Yeah, uh, including Breath of the Wild. Yeah, but it's a lot of those that freedom, yes. that open ended, like we'll go see what's over the next hill type. So stuff. yeah, and also speaking of writing, I mean, the writing. I guess it depends if when you say the writing is is generally weak in Bethesda games. It depends if you're talking about on a like grand storytelling level versus a um, minutia like individual lines making you that's laugh kind of i'm more things. talking about individual lines oh you mm-hmm. are talking about the individual lines yeah. uh tears of the kingdom the writing is phenomenal on a on a micro level every single mm-hmm. person has something funny and interesting and super yeah, like surprisingly really moving mm-hmm. to say um there's just a lot of good writing and, and a lot of silly puns too but uh uh including from our favorite reporter Penn, who has some great lines <laughs> yep, but, uh, yep. but yeah but that's a, a, a game that like uh i think if even even Zelda. I guess Zelda games, especially recently, have had have had pretty good uh, uh, writing. So uh, we shouldn't be dismissive of that. But like, if if games that aren't trying to be narrative focused can still master the writing, then uh, I think the bar is pretty high in general for uh, for the level of writing you want to see from some of these games. Yeah. So I wanted to circle back to something you said, Kirk, which was it feels like a Bethesda game. And I just wanted to challenge you to explain what you mean when you say something feels like a Bethesda game. That's so, a great question. <laughs> for starters, it has bad writing. <laughs> you know? oh, God. No, I think that the world of a Bethesda game is a pretty distinct video game environment. And it does feel a certain way. So when I say that, I mean... There is, uh, you're presented with a pretty open space to move through. The space itself gives you at least one or two things in your field of vision that you can go to and explore. That's a that's been true of these games for mm-hmm. a long time. You see that mountain, you can climb it, etc. Or really, like, if you think of a Fallout game, if you're playing Fallout 3, if you look around, you can always just kind of see some weird-looking building over there, and you just are like, that's something for sure. Mm-hmm. And you kind of are trained by these games to know, if I head in that direction, I'm going to find a side quest, I'm going to find something. Occasionally, you're going to stumble into a story mission that you weren't supposed to go to yet, but usually it's some kind of side thing. So that's part of it. A big thing for me is that uh, Bethesda games don't have a mini-map, mm-hmm. and I know that Zelda typically does, though you can turn it off. Um, I'm kind of back and forth between having an off and on, by the way, in, in Tears of the Kingdom. We'll probably talk about that in the Beans cast. It's pretty, it's um, pretty minimal in Tears of the Kingdom. True. It is. It's, it's pretty minimal. It's definitely not as intrusive as in some other games. But mm-hmm. when I play, say, The Witcher 3, I like to mod that game so that I have a compass, which is what they typically have in a Bethesda game. At the top of your screen, there's a compass, like in Horizon Zero Dawn also has this. Um, modern Ubisoft games, like the most yep. recent Ubisoft games do as well. I'm a big fan of that compared to a mini-map. Mm-hmm. This is, I'm sure a lot of listeners know that I don't like mini-maps. I used to write about <laughs> it at Kotaku. But I think that they just distract your eye to the corner of the screen. Bethesda games, for a long time, to their credit, instead just have this compass that can be kind of confusing. But I like that because it doesn't give you too much information. So your eyes are not as distracted. So you're really, that's the feel of a Bethesda game is you're kind of looking around at the horizon. You're looking for things to do. And then you're just going that way. And then as you walk that way, you find some other stuff that you might do. So that's one part of it. And another part that I'll just mention is there's an ele- there's an element of simulation. Like in Bethesda games, there is like... Objects have material properties. Wood can maybe catch fire or it'll float. Like water moves a certain way. You can blow something up or carry a certain amount of weight or, you know, there's like a simulated quality to the world and also to the social simulation of the towns and all the people. So you can make guards mad or you can pickpocket people and take things out of their pockets that they needed and then, you know, sell them back to them or or whatever. There's kind of this... Uh, simulated sandbox quality to the world that lets you manipulate it. So that's, I think, another another big part. And there are always, I mean, extrapolating on that, there are always, extrapolating from that, there are always uh, uh, superfluous objects, objects that you can just pick up and throw around and just <laughs> yeah. have no value, have uh-huh. no purpose other than just being there. And I think that's something, uh, Baldur's Gate 3 has a lot of that too. I think that's something go- that goes all the way back to Ultima Underworld, which mm-hmm. many people consider one of the first immersive sims. Right, I don't remember, original. it might have been in previous on Ultima games too, but that one really strikes me. That really comes to mind as a game that just like is full of objects you can interact with that only exist to make the game feel the world feel more lived in and, and real. And that I always found to be really an interesting property of, of these games. Um, mm-hmm. As opposed to there's some open world games where like 
deliberately everything. I mean, Horizon is a good example where everything you find in it has a purpose, and some you're not going right. to find just like random, random garbage that you can't do anything with that just exists to be there. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, that's a that's a huge drawback of the Horizon games. You should be able to collect sandwiches. Yeah, more ashtrays, <laughs> more broken, <laughs> broken teddy well, also, bears. Also, um, you should be able to mod ten thousand wheels of cheese into <laughs> a house so that you open the door and the cheese all explodes out of the doors. I think modding is another really important part of Bethesda Game Studios mm. games that still really makes their games stand apart. I mean, a huge part of Skyrim's longevity was the fact that there was this really vibrant modding scene. And, I mean, I was at Kotaku during the heyday of Skyrim. I was there when it launched in 2011, or I guess, no, right when it yeah, launched. Yeah, end of like, 2011. Right when I started. Yeah. And then... Um, 11, and 11, 11. All the way through... Um, all the way through its its reign as the kind of most popular and successful role-playing game ever. And a lot of that was because mods people would make these amazing mods they would make mods that made it look beautiful so you know whatever these sort of shader mods or mods that would change the lighting realistic water they would make mods that would kind of change the way the simulation worked so that you would get hungry and have to you know take care of your survival needs and turn it more into a survival game people made whole new missions where they would add new voice acting and characters new companions that would follow you around there are people who are trying to build versions of Morrowind in the Skyrim engine that it's called Skywind. There, are, I'm sure there will be people who try to build Morrowind in whatever the Starfield engine. Like people are always trying to build Morrowind in every Star, single Starwind. every single game that Bethesda releases. So that's a big part of the longevity of these games. And I think they've been pretty smart over the years about always allowing modders to have a lot of room to work. And I guess Fallout 76, being well, an always online multiplayer up. game, is the exception to that, and kind of the exception in a lot of ways, in yeah. a lot of unfortunate ways. I think. And is the game that. Most most people would cite as something that doesn't feel like a Bethesda game and yet is right. also the most recent significant Bethesda game before Starfield and is why mm-hmm. I think Starfield is coming out in such a weird spot for Bethesda games. I mean, I guess maybe that's why we're having this conversation is because it kind of felt for a bit like Bethesda lost their way, did a little bit of wacky stuff, made an MMO that just didn't didn't properly emulate the things about a Bethesda world that feel good because other people role playing can't quite mimic the weird NPC interactions and sense of discovery and exploration Mm -hmm. that can happen in a more designed world. But that's part of why I'm like, I don't know what Starfield's going to (laughs) be. I don't, I don't know if it's going to feel like a Bethesda game at all. It's an interesting question, what Starfield is going to be like. This is kind of a fun time to talk about it since yeah. none of us have played it. And <laughs> yeah. this is about, that's about to change. To like It's going to come out yeah. soon the world will have played it. Yeah, I think just, I, the embargo might lift like right around when this episode comes out. So we'll, um, we'll read reviews right around when this episode yeah, comes Yeah, so out. we'll be reading reviews and I'll be very curious because, yeah, I don't know what it even means for a game to be a Bethesda Game Studios game now. So Todd Howard, right. who was game director on Morrowind. I think his first his first gig as project lead for them was for Redguard, which is a kind of ill-fated spin-off of Daggerfall in the 90s. But he was the lead on Morrowind and he's been like the prime creative force at Bethesda Game Studios for this whole time for like 20 years. And he is the still out there talking about Starfield, but at the same time, a lot of people have left Bethesda Game Studios. It's a very different place than it was whatever 12 years ago or even longer than that when they were ago when they were making Skyrim. So it's a really different place now and the bloom is off the rose in a lot of ways. I mean people have been very critical of Fallout 4 which again was so long ago. Then there was this feeling that they were kind of coasting or they're re-releasing Skyrim over and over and over on every yep. platform possible. They're making <laughs> VR versions of these games. Fallout 76 was pretty disappointing to a lot of people. I do gather they've fixed it or they've made it better. There are some people who like the game but it was yeah. never going to be what people wanted. Mm-hmm. And now comes Starfield. So, yeah, I'm kind of curious what that game is going to be. Yeah, the thing that's most striking to me is that Bethesda Game Studios now is hundreds of people, I think close to 500, 400 or 500 people. Wow, really? Oh, I actually didn't know they'd gotten that big. Across yeah. four different studios. They have studios, their their original one, which is in Rockville, Maryland, and then they also have a studio in Montreal, a studio in Dallas, and a studio in Austin, Texas. So 
they are way bigger. And you might hear that and think, oh, cool, that means they can make lots and lots more stuff and their games are going to be bigger and better. <laughs> and that, I mean, to some extent, that's true. I mean, Larian went from 140 people to 450, like I mentioned uh, the other day about, about for Baldur's Gate 3. But also, it creates some problems. Skyrim was made with 100 people. And one of the reasons, there are two reasons that was possible. One is extreme, brutal crunch. And the other is... Uh, a group of people who have this chemistry and can all be in a room together and like just jam and stuff and like people being empowered to go and do their own things and create their own things. And when you add hundreds of people to the equation, you also have to put in layers of middle management and it, it kind of, it can change the way you at, you get in office politics. It really changes the way a game studio works um, in both positive and negative ways. So I think Starfield will be really the first kind of example of this new age Bethesda, this way bigger Bethesda Game Studios, this way different Bethesda Game Studios. One thing I have heard, and I've been hearing this since, uh, this is not from like reviewers or anything, it's something I heard from game devs, is that this will be the least buggy game Bethesda has made. And we didn't mention <laughs> bugs at all, but that's oh. another characteristic of Bethesda games. But that is something that, that I've heard pretty definitively from, from people who worked on this thing, that they they are really proud of it being the least buggy game Bethesda has made. Hmm. Something else that I consider a Bethesda quality is having a really specific aesthetic. Like, I always feel like Morrowind, Oblivion, Skyrim, they all feel like they're part of the same series. You can just look at it and know it's not mm -hmm. just any fantasy game either. Like, yeah, okay, it looks like D&D. There's certainly some Tolkien in there. Like, it, it's not like the most original thing that's ever been invented. That's not what I'm trying to say. I just mean like the colors, design, and visual aesthetic overall look like a specific Thing. And the same goes for Fallout, even for games that aren't necessarily developed by Bethesda. You can tell what a Fallout game looks and feels like. The music is a certain way. The props are a certain way. It just looks like a Fallout game. And I think that's a really good thing, not just from a mm -hmm. branding and licensing perspective, but just from a narrative perspective, even though we've been kind of hard on the writing. Like, part of being into a, a specific series of books or movies or anything else is being like, I like spending time in this world. I like this specific designed world. And not to just constantly harp on Starfield, but once again, I don't totally get what that aesthetic is. <laughs> yeah, another game worth mentioning uh, related to Starfield is No Man's Sky, because mm. I think that No Man's Sky has a pretty similar aesthetic and is a similar kind of game. And I played a lot of No Man's Sky. It's been fascinating watching No Man's Sky become what it is, a yes. game that's still being expanded upon all these years later. But No Man's Sky exists, and a lot mm -hmm. of people have played it. And there is now that question of well, what is Starfield going to do that No Man's Sky doesn't? Where I wasn't asking that question about Skyrim. There was right. no other game that was doing what Skyrim is doing. I wasn't asking mm. that question about Fallout 3 right. yeah. either. Yeah. But Starfield... It doesn't even look that different. I don't know. I, I hope I'm proven <laughs> Well, <wrong. laughs> I, yeah, I'm curious to see what it's like. I, I don't know how Same. much I'm going to play, but we'll definitely talk about it. We'll oh, all play I'll, it and I'll talk about it, it I'm sure. I'll, I'll take a little Baldur's Gate break. I'm yeah, curious. a little Baldur's Gate break to play some Starfield. Yes, we will, we will, I'm sure, be back to talk about Starfield once it's out and we've had a chance to play it. In the meantime, how about we take a break and then come back for one more thing? The Greatest Generation, Maximum Fun's irreverent, potty-mouthed Star Trek podcast is a big deal. How big? It's the only Star Trek podcast big enough to have our very own live show tour. And we're inviting all Star Trek fan max funsters everywhere. We're calling it the Share Your Embarrassment Tour. And this year we're going to celebrate and roast Star Trek V, The Final Frontier. We're going to go to a bunch of cities. And GreatestGenTour.com has all the info. That's greatestgentour.com for dates and ticketing info for the Share Your Embarrassment Tour. Share your embarrassment and grow stronger from the sharing. Hi, I'm Travis McElroy. And I'm Teresa McElroy. And we're the host of Schmanners. We don't believe that etiquette should be used to judge other people. No, on Schmanners, we see etiquette as a way to navigate social situations with confidence. So if that sounds like something you're into, join us every Friday on Maximum Fun, wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back for one more thing. Maddie, how about you kick us off? What's your one more thing? 
My One More Thing is a book I'm reading. I'm not done yet because it's pretty long. <laughs> it's called <laughs> Imbeciles and it's by Adam Cohen. Here's the full title. It's it's a real long title. You guys oh, ready nice. for it? Lo- I love a long title book. It, you can tell this is an academic book. You guys are going to be impressed. All right. Imbeciles, The Supreme Court, American Eugenics, and the Sterilization of Carrie Buck. So this is like a truly harrowing title. I did not know really anything about this topic, but I was reading a Jamel Bowie column in the New York Times because I'm becoming my mother, I guess. I read the same column, so I'm also (laughs) becoming your mother. Yeah, and he linked to this book on Google Reads, and I was really taken by the title, especially the last part. I don't know who Carrie Buck is. She's just this unknowable woman from hundreds a uh, hundred years ago uh, who at, was uh, part of a Supreme Court case about sterilizing supposed feeble-minded people in America and she was mm-hmm. deemed feeble-minded so just something about the sterilization of a hyper specific person's name kind of creeped me out as like a book title and also just the idea of imbeciles being like a genetic category that we assign to people in a, a period of American history was really horrifying to me, but in a way where I was curious and I wanted to know more. So I bothered to click on the Google Books link and I started reading the book and I was immediately hooked by the first chapter. It's very well laid out by the author, Adam Cohen. Uh, A lot of the rest of the book is less punchy than that first chapter and a lot more academic and just a real straight up history book about every single person in this time period who contributed to American eugenics, like actual Mm -hmm. pre-World War II eugenics arguments that the Nazis cited and that Hitler cited Mm -hmm. in his own writings in terms of arguing in favor of eugenics in Nazi Germany. And I think that's a part of American history that we basically never talk about. And Adam Cohen lays that out really well in that opening chapter. I would say if folks just want to read the opening on Google Reads, I recommend that. I'm really enjoying the whole book. I like history books, but it's definitely dense. Uh, And the other thing that the book gets into that I think is fascinating is intelligence tests, which I I think all the three of us know are based in racism and bigotry, like at their core, like the every the IQ test, like eugenicists mm-hmm. were heavily involved in the development of those tests. And many of them don't measure jack shit. I mean, I, I don't know how to put this. Adam Cohen puts it better than I just did. But <laughs> that's pretty straight. Basically, then. he lays out that intelligence tests are bunk and they measure almost nothing other than how well you can remember the answers to a test. And they're often used to discredit either disabled people, people of color, or really anybody who you need to discredit, you can make a test to discredit them. To prevent them from voting, for example, that's a big part of the book is the way that for a while uh, literacy tests were used to uh, disallow certain people from voting. Anyway, lots of very fascinating historical information here and about a period of time before World War II in American history that I think nowadays no one thinks about at all because no one in America these days even imagines that eugenics would have been a part of laws in our land. I, I, at least I never hear about it. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's a fascinating book. It's called imbeciles and it's by Adam Cohen and I recommend it. Yeah. I've heard of this book. It sounds, it sounds very interesting. Always fun to realize that America has even more sins than we even yeah, know about and think about. Oh yeah. So it's many more. wild how much stuff we just act like it never happened at all. <laughs> We're just like, that's fine. I have gotten a sense that this era is getting a little bit more attention, but it might just be because I read the same Jamel Bowie column and he's always talking about interesting historical stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, Jamel Bowie's out here talking about things that nobody else talks about. I mean, the other horrifying thing is that this particular Supreme Court decision hasn't been overturned. And Adam Cohen really has like, this is his hill that he's fighting on, Mm. you know, where he's like, it's crazy that this is the case. And you read the book and you're like, yeah, it is crazy. What the heck? Well, that's, I mean, it's good if you're going to choose a hill to die on. Yeah, one why not? That nobody else is fighting on, right? That's mm-hmm. cool. Um, that sounds like an interesting book. Jason, what is your one more thing? My one more thing is a new video game that just came out uh, this week. I've been playing an early copy provided by the publisher called Sea of Stars. And this is a game by Sabotage Studios, best known, uh, well, only known for their previous release, The Messenger, which you guys might remember, came mm-hmm. out a few oh, years yeah. ago. Yep. Is that kind of ninja guidance style platformer that then turned into a Metroidvania super cool game. This game is totally different. It's a JRPG. Uh, 
inspired very heavily by Chrono Trigger and also Mario RPG slash Paper Mario. And so the way it works is it's this turn-based RPG and you are this group of adventurers and you go explore this kind of really wild, interesting universe and, uh, well, not universe, I guess planet with like a bunch of islands and stuff. And it's really interesting and got cool music um, and other great JRPG stuff. It's got turn-based combat that has kind of rhythm timing uh, moves straight out of Paper Mario where you have to you get you can do extra damage by pressing the button at the right time oh, yeah, which keeps you keeps you engaged in the combat but other than that it feels very Chrono Trigger like the the battles unfold in the same way as Chrono Trigger where the enemies are on screen and when you run into them they jump into position and then all your guys are fighting on the on the same mm-hmm. battlefield and it's really cool there's a lot to like about it the animations are really cool the story is is kind of interesting the uh, combat is is fun Characters are interesting, but there are uh, two fatal flaws, really one fatal flaw and then one kind of caveat. I'll start with the caveat. The caveat is that with the first game, The Messenger, people discovered that uh, there was like a Jordan Peterson quote hidden in it. And people are like, oh, man, (laughs) our... Uh, are the uh, developers here uh, inspired by Jordan Peterson? And actually, I got a message, kind of unsolicited message, um, from this guy, Terry, who's the designer and director and writer of the game. Um, and he sent me a message in 2021. I had actually met him at an event, like, previewing The Messenger, so I knew him. And he sent me an email, uh, a note saying, hey, I just wanted to reach out regarding uh, these Peterson comments that are inevitable. I hadn't said anything about it. It was just kind of like a preemptive thing. <laughs> and he was like, the gist of it is that uh, this specific bit I wrote about this problematic man was sarcasm written in a second language, which has missed the mark with part of the audience. I lived and learned, but happy to address further if you want. So uh, he is kind of whatever he might have intended at the time, he has walked it back. So make of that what you will if you are considering buying the game. But I thought it was mm. worth, and I, I've even I've seen people talking about this in our Discord, in the Triple Click Discord, so I thought it was worth sharing those comments I got mm. a couple of years ago from the developer. Sure. But mm-hmm. that leads to the actual fatal flaw of this game, which is that it's very clearly written by someone who English is his second language. Mm. And um, I don't think there's like, obviously there's nothing wrong with making a game in English if English is your second language, but as an English reader, it can be a little tough to get through when the English is not really there and the writing is not really there. And as you read it, it feels very clunky. The dialogue is very, there are a lot of comma splices. Pretty much every sentence has a comma splice, which always has been a bugbear for me. Yes. And it's tough to get Jason's through. Pet peeve. <laughs> it is. Because uh, they're used a lot in games writing too. I always hated them. Headlines especially. Um, and it's it's tough to get through in a JRPG. And this is very noticeable in The Messenger that like English was not was clearly not the first language of the writers, but it was fine because it wasn't a dialogue-heavy game. It was a platformer. In a JRPG where there's dialogue everywhere, it's a little bit of a tougher hang. And it's very noticeable if you are a native English speecher, speaker. Um, speecher, yeah, there, you go. there we go. There's my <laughs> native English coming Speeching out. Um, especially if you're a writer. So that's just, that's been a real, a real tough, it's made it tougher to be like, wow, this is a really cool new JRPG that if you're into Chrono Trigger, you should check this out because that's such a big hiccup for me and it's really uh, uh, stopped me from enjoying quite as much this game that I would otherwise really be enjoying uh, is the English in it. So that's unfortunate and I wish that that they had gotten a couple of, uh, maybe gotten a grammar pass on it uh, from, from some editors or something like that. But I guess maybe one day they can patch it or something. But yeah, that, that's, a, that's mm-hmm. a tough part. Um, but otherwise, yeah, Sea of Stars, it's a cool game. I'm enjoying it. I'll play some more. I'll, I'll, I'll be, uh, I'll be, Playing through it uh, until I until I get something else, I guess. But yeah, see you, stars. That's my one more thing. Cool, nice. Well, my one more thing is a show that I've been watching called How to with John Wilson. Have either of the two of you watched this show? I know of it. No, I've seen parts of it. It seems like an acquired taste. <laughs> I I feel like I don't understand it, but tell me more. <laughs> okay, so you haven't really watched it. No. So um so neither of you have really watched it. This show is incredible. Um yeah, so love I'm going to give it a, a wholehearted recommendation. This show is totally great and the two of you would love it. <laughs> I feel okay. pretty safe saying that. Cool. Um and I'm going to tell listeners about it because I only just started watching it. The show is currently in its third season, which I think is going to be its last. I just have watched the first 
four episodes of the first season. The show is on Max, formerly HBO. Rip. Oh, we have to call it Max. <laughs> Somehow called Max now. <laughs> but uh, this they show was made I mean, for HBO. Yeah, Twitter um, is X, so. No, uh, no, it's not. <laughs> yeah, we're just. No. A lot of people are killing a lot of very well known brand names for some reason, right? It's now. really just, yeah. Bizarre. Man. Anyways, uh, so this is made by a documentarian named John Wilson. It is executive produced by Nathan Fielder, which uh, maybe puts some of it into context. It is an unusual show about reality that tends to go down strange rabbit holes and wind up in profound and beautiful places. So this guy, John Wilson, approaches each episode with a question, or how do I do this? So how do you uh, make small talk with people? The very first episode, how to make small talk. The second episode is how to build scaffolding. How do you build scaffolding around a building? Uh, The third one is how to improve your memory. So it starts with a question like that. And it's this very uh, extemporaneous sounding narration over a lot of footage of mostly New York City. So John Wilson lives in New York. He always has his camera with him everywhere he goes. He films basically everything he's ever seen, as far as I can tell, based on the footage that he uses in the show. And then he mostly just narrates. He's almost never on camera, except in reflections. So it's just him kind of talking. He has a very funny way of talking. There's a lot of ums and uhs. Yeah, he speaks very slowly and gently. Very Yeah, he has a, a very, I think, a very appealing voice, but yeah. it's just a strange way of talking, and it almost sounds like he's making up the script in the booth as he's going, but it's also kind of an affect, but it never is distracting, or at least I find it very funny mm-hmm. usually. I'm also not sure it is an affect for what it's worth. I, I'm, I will never know, I guess. <laughs> I, yeah, having listened to it, you, you can just see how they could record it as the first take and be like, okay, now can you do it again and not pause forever right, right. and trail off? <laughs> Like it, it, but they go with it. Like they yes. want that energy. Yes. I suppose an affect isn't the way to describe it, but like it is on purpose. I it know what you mean. Part that. of the show's energy is that this guy is kind of faking it, kind of talking off the top of his head, even while the show itself is this immaculately put together presentation. So he starts with something like, uh, for example, in that first episode, how to make small talk. And he starts talking about how it works, uh, different techniques you might try for making small talk. But pretty soon he's just talking to people on the street. Then he's like gone to Cancun for spring break because he thinks if you're on a trip, you can talk to people. And then he winds up just having this really kind of meaningful, surprisingly meaningful conversation with this dude who's down there because MTV spring break is being filmed at the same time right next to them. So the the topic, like the subject matter, tends to lead to a lot of really interesting digressions. And that's part of the joy of the show. The second episode uh, is actually probably my favorite that I've seen, How to Build Scaffolding, because it starts being a really interesting look at just the scaffolding industry and the fact that there's scaffolding under like every single building in New York City, which is something that you see but then stop seeing really quickly. And when someone points it out, you realize like, holy crap, this whole city is just covered in this stuff. And why is that? So he explains why it is. He gets a little into how they build it, but then it becomes a very different kind of discussion. The episode winds up being about how the impermanent things in our life become permanent and you know how you maybe like he starts being like well you know braces are scaffolding for your teeth and a cast is scaffolding for your body and then maybe you're scaffolding other parts of your life in other ways and it starts to become really beautiful. So that's the way that this, like, the subject of a given episode works. What makes the show true genius, I think, is the way that he juxtaposes what he's saying with the B-roll that he's showing you. He has so much footage of New York, and there are so many times where he'll just say a sentence. Like, I guess in the end, some things just aren't really supposed to be preserved for a long time. But while he's saying that, he's showing like a taxidermied animal that he saw in a store somewhere, and the camera is just lingering on it. So then your mind, you just have to draw the connection between some things not supposed to last forever and just this random taxidermied animal that you're looking at. And the whole show is like that. So the visual humor of it, the way that he uses these incredible shots, like this stuff that he shoots all the time, just everyday occurrences, people on the street. It's so interesting. Like, it's just the stuff of everyday life. And then he finds clever ways to weave his script into and out of it. It's really remarkable. I mean, I at least, I'm so blown away by the intricacy of every episode and just how funny and delightful and often profound and beautiful it can be. I really can't recommend it enough. I can't believe I hadn't watched it until now. And I think it's just like, it's a remarkable feat of like documentary filmmaking and of writing. So it's really good. 
And this is produced by Nathan Fielder, right? <laughs> it is. Um, apparently, Fielder saw an earlier documentary that John Wilson made. He was kind of making his way up as a documentary, and Fielder saw it and was like, you're good. I want to work with you. Yeah. And so he's been producing it. It feels like anytime uh, there's some sort of like kind of weird documentary hybrid thing mm-hmm. that Nathan Fielder has to be involved. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it doesn't have the sort of surreal or it's not mean, but the manipulative streak that mm. Fielder tends to have, that kind of Andy Kaufman thing. Mm -hmm. It's not really doing that. It's a much more introspective, introverted kind of work. So if that puts people off about some field or work, like it makes them too uncomfortable. So far, this doesn't make me uncomfortable. I just find it delightful and informative and cool. So it's pretty different, but it does have a little bit of that fielder DNA for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, So anyways, yeah, it's amazing. I hope the two of you watch it. I think think you'd both really like it and would love to know what you think if you do. Yeah, you've convinced me. Yeah, I would like to watch it. That's How To with John Wilson. It's on Max, and uh, it's a very cool show. Great. And that's it. That's uh, that's another episode of Triple Click. Folks. Did it again. Yeah, we did it again. Just three married people uh, making <laughs> <Yay>! our show. <laughs> three married people. That should be our new name. We're going to change our brand, our successful brand, Triple, Triple Click. We're rings. renaming. We need to at least put rings onto the hands in our logo. Uh-huh. Just oh to let everybody God. know that yep. we're taken. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Uh, we managed to get women to marry us. So we did somehow. That's true. We aren't All three losers. of us. It's true. It's true. All lowercase g gamers can find hope in that. All right. Well, this has been fun. I will see the two of you next week. See you next week. Bye. Triple Click is produced by Jason Schreier, Maddie Myers, and me, Kirk Hamilton. I edit and mix the show, and also wrote our theme music. Our show art is by Tom DJ. Some of the games and products we talked about on this episode may have been sent to us for free for review consideration. You can find a link to our ethics policy in the show notes. Triple Click is a proud member of the Maximum Fun Podcast Network, and if you like our show, we hope you'll consider supporting us by becoming a member at MaximumFun.org join. Find us on Twitter at TripleClickPod, send email to TripleClick at MaximumFun.org, and find a link to our Discord in the show notes. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Maximum Fun, a worker-owned network of artist-owned shows, supported directly by you.